Welcome to Form My PLJ Podcast. I'm the online editor, Patrick Ho. Today, Form My PLJ staff member, Meredith Miller, is going to sit down with practicing patent attorney, Jay Douglas Miller, from Shoemaker, Loop, and Kendrick in Toledo, Ohio. Together, they're going to talk about how startups can utilize patents and intellectual property in their growing business. They'll also talk about what startups need to know about intellectual property, how to obtain a patent, and considerations when crafting an IP strategy. More importantly, Jay Douglas Miller is Meredith Miller's father. I hope you guys enjoy this episode. to the Fordham Law IPLJ podcast. I'm Meredith Miller. With me today is my guest, Doug Miller. He's an attorney from Shoemaker, Loop, and Kendrick in Toledo, Ohio. Can you tell me basically how you got into patent law? It's a little bit of a roundabout story. I, you know, originally was an engineer and even back going through engineering school, we had a patent attorney came in and spoke to our class. And that's kind of what piqued my initial interest in uh, being a patent attorney, had been out in industry for about 10 years and going back to law school and the type of engineering that I was doing was environmental related. My background is a mechanical engineer, but environmental uh, is what essentially I'd gotten into at a consulting firm and also in industry and assumed when I started law school that I would end up maybe in environmental law. But started looking into patent law again as a potential career I uh, had the opportunity to work with a local patent attorney and uh, work part-time with, with him for a little while to, to kind of get get my feet wet and learn a little bit about it. And the more I found out about it, the more I liked it. It's actually a very interesting career. Uh, you see a lot of interesting inventions come through the door. So um, from that standpoint, it's it's exciting and new. So it's it. Overall, um, you know, just that's that's basically how I ended up getting into it. Can you talk a little bit more about the transition working full-time as an engineer into working full-time as a lawyer? Yeah, it was a tough transition. Um, had been working, again, for about 10 years in, um, in engineering, and it was just a complete change of direction. I can remember coming home at night, thinking, you know, telling my wife at the time that I just didn't even know the, where the pencils were and, and so it was just a complete complete change, not only a, uh, a job change but a complete career path change. Interesting. So can you describe in layman's terms what a patent is and why it can be useful to businesses? Yeah, the, you know the common definition for you know a patent is a common uh, note that you hear about uh, patents is that it gives you the right to exclude others from making, using, and selling. One way you can look at that is it gives you a competitive advantage because you can kind of screen competitors out of your market um, through, you know, through the use of your patent. Uh, but, you know, the government also looks at that as encouraging innovation because the your competitors are kind of forced to try to design around uh, what what you have, and uh, in the end, that ends up spurring uh, further invention and, and, and innovation. I also think it incentivizes inventors to create new ideas that otherwise they might not if 
they were not guaranteed a certain amount of monopoly over right. their invention afterwards. Right. So could you tell me a little bit about your patent practice? Uh, we, we've got quite a diverse practice, uh, maybe more so than, than most places. We, we represent companies all the way from very large Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, all the way down to individual inventors. Um, some, some people really don't like working with individual inventors, number one, you know, because of, um, they, they do take a little bit more time to deal with, you know, to, to work with, to try to help them understand the process. But it's, on the other hand, it's, it's, it's very interesting. They oftentimes have some of the more interesting inventions, um, that, that impact everyday life for people. Uh, I've heard over the years uh, that some of the more common types of inventions are sporting-related and tools. Uh, so people are trying, you know, they're at home and trying to figure out better ways to do things or working through uh, sporting-type stuff, so, you know, trying to protect people, things like that. So, But that's, overall, our like I say, our, our practice is pretty diverse and that again keeps pretty things pretty interesting from that standpoint. So, how often do you encounter startups and entrepreneurs in your practice, and in what capacity? Um, quite often, I, you know, we, we've we deal with a number of different um, vehicles that that help us bring clients in. Working with local universities, we have uh, several um, like incubators and accelerators in the area. And we work with them, and, and essentially, as they have clients that come in that may have intellectual property needs, uh, they'll refer them to us. So that's one one area that we'll encounter. We actually have a fair number of people that just essentially uh, walk in type clients that um, have invented something and end up calling us and, and kind of a cold call and walking walking in and uh, talking and it's it. Again, you know, it takes a little bit of extra time up front, but um, in the long run, those are some of the more rewarding clients. So when you get an entrepreneur coming into your office and they ask about their IP needs, what what do you tell them? What what things should they consider when crafting an IP strategy? It's, it's really tough a lot of times for, you know, especially individuals or, um, small companies that are just starting out because you have to really balance a lot of a lot of things. Number one uh, on that list is typically money. Startups and individuals typically don't have a lot of money that they can essentially throw at creating intellectual property, or protecting their intellectual property. You know, the, from the patent end especially. I mean, you, you at at the low end, you're, you're looking at a, you know, a twelve to $15,000 investment for them. Uh, and uh, that's a lot of money. And, you know, they're trying to create prototypes. They're trying to market their product. They're trying to get uh, some manufacturing started. So there's a lot of demands on, on their uh, finance from the financial end. So that's, you know, one of the big struggles uh, that they have. So they, but from a strategic standpoint, it's, one of the things they really cannot afford to to not take care of getting either you know getting a patent or, or otherwise protecting their ideas because 
they're going to spend a lot of money trying to get it to market. And if, if they can't keep competitors out of the space for you know, a period of time, then the competitors can jump from the point of innovation all the way up to where they are in you know in one one step and, and avoid all the costs associated with doing that so um, it's it, it, it's an important step that they really need to not uh, not overlook so we talked a little bit about entrepreneurs that have a limited budget what about entrepreneurs that perhaps have capital but they want to get their patent sooner are there routes with that they can take to obtain a patent sooner and what circumstances would you recommend using these routes? So some of the more recent uh, changes to the patent laws have allowed for accelerated examination. There have always been other routes uh, such as a petition to make special where you can uh, move things more quickly. The biggest or the most frequent way that we see that occurring is with uh, someone of advanced age. You can apply or you can petition to make special your uh, patent application uh, based upon uh, an inventor's advanced age. And again, that's probably the most frequent way that we see it, and, and it allows things to move much more quickly. The accelerated exam, um, there's some disadvantages to that being, you know, one of them being uh, some additional upfront costs. Uh, associated with some of the the legwork that you have to do in front up front, so um, there you know you, you want to try to counsel them, uh, the client a little bit to make sure that there's a, a good reason that they want to uh, move things along more quickly, such as a, a an infringer, the the costs and everything associated with it. They're just uh, somewhat uh, of a deterrent, and you know again it's it, we often try to advise. Um, maybe against uh, against that. I know there are some patent attorneys that feel that the examination that they get using the uh, the accelerated um, models are are like less well just because they they move more quickly that they don't get as careful of a of a review as what they should and so um, there's also you know that uh, that that you have to look at so it. Again, you know, there are circumstances where you want to, but oftentimes, um, you know, it, it, the, having them um, pending for a little while longer will also defer some of the costs until later when you may have an additional income stream coming in for your product. Yeah, and I just want to clarify the, the expedited track that's not the petition to make special is the patent prosecution highway, correct? Uh, that's one of them, correct, yes. Where you can basically pay up front to get a and faster examination. Yeah, those those uh, apply where you have a foreign uh, patent application that's that's advanced through more quick or advanced through the process, and they can use some of the uh, information gleaned from that uh, to apply either in in the U.S. or if the U.S. is the application that's advanced first, they can use the information as well on a foreign country. So if for some reason an entrepreneur is deciding between a patent and a trade secret, can you first talk about what is a trade secret and the difference between a patent and a trade secret and why an inventor might prefer one over the other? Yeah, the 
trade secret is basically something that gives you a competitive advantage. Um, they can be customer lists. They can be a formulation such as, uh, for example, the Coke formula. Um, but there's something that, uh, if kept secret, uh, gives you an advantage over other parties. And so that in looking at a trade secret versus a patent, by far the best way to protect something is by trade secret. Um, the biggest reason for that is that it's perpetual. As long as you can keep it secret, um, then it, and, and it remains secret, uh, you basically still uh, take the advantages that, that that uh, presents. Uh, just looking again, for example, at the Coke formula, assuming the Coke formula were patentable, if they had gotten a patent on the Coke formula 20 years later or 17 at that time, um, years later, it would have been available and everybody could make their own Coca-Cola. Because and, patents are published. Right. Published and then once the uh, they expire, they're dedicated to the public domain and so we could have all made Coca-Cola. But um, the fact that it's held in secret and, and nobody can duplicate it, um, then you know, it gives you, gives you that advantage uh, again forever. The, the risk you have is if it you know, basically once the cat is out of the bag, you know, it's hard to put it back in. Um, so if for some reason um, the trade secret is either misappropriated or just made public, um, then you've essentially lost it. So it's, it does not lend itself to something that's easily reverse engineered. Um, so in some cases you uh, have to, you know, the patent protection is the best way to go just because of what the invention is. Yeah, because a patented invention, while the patent is still valid, even if a person can reverse engineer it, they're not allowed to make it. Right. So if a person, for whatever reason, maybe they don't trust attorneys or they have a limited budget and they want to obtain a patent without the use of a patent agent or attorney, are there alternatives for them to do that? And what are the pros and cons of these alternatives? Well, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office has um, some very good tools that are help, helpful for individual inventors. Um, you know, they certainly can write a patent application and file it on their own and do the prosecution on their own. Um, the biggest mistake that we typically see with that, though, is if they... The, the claims, which is the important part, the legal part of a patent, um, are very difficult to write in that one extra word can mean the difference between infringement and non-infringement. And so you, you, know, you really spend a lot of time uh, writing the claims, tearing them apart, trying to you know, go back and look and make, see if there's a better way, a broader way that you can um, to write the claim so that you keep the protection as broad as possible. It's the when a when a person representing himself tries to write a claim, um, it, it's a little bit counterintuitive. But the the biggest mistake they make is they try to include all the information they can. They try to describe it in such detail. In the end, what they're doing is narrowing their coverage. Um, so that's the biggest um, deterrent. You know, I, I see towards having someone try to do that. It's just 
Um, again, you know, there's a lot of a lot of words that have been litigated that 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 have certain meanings, and if you use them improperly, or if you put a term in the claims that um, isn't the right term, you, you're going to very severely limit your your coverage and your protection. So it's yes. In the short, the short answer is yes. They typically can uh, represent themselves and save money that way. But it's it's uh, very, uh, in the long run, very dangerous for them to do that because they can um, drastically affect what kind of coverage you're going to get. We'll oftentimes allow a an inventor to essentially write the specification for like a provisional patent application, and they can save money that way. Um, instead of paying us to write the entire application, they can provide as much deep detail as possible. And uh, in the specification, you know, as I always tell our clients, it's a, somewhat of a how-to manual. It's what it is, what it does, how it works. That's that's what they need to convey in the patent application. And so, in in that respect, the more information they can provide, the better, because. Um, the danger is if they didn't, if they don't include some aspect about their invention uh, in the provisional, it's not going, to, not going to be afforded the filing date. So, if they either file another provisional later or don't file until the utility time of filing the utility application, they could lose up to a year in priority, which is could be, you know, again, pretty, uh, pretty important. Because there could be a an intervening patent application Correct. or something in that time. So can you talk a little bit about a patent portfolio and what that is and why a, a new business should be interested in investing in one? Well, well, the way we always kind of look at it is it's uh, kind of like a picket fence. You know, you're, you're trying to uh, put together a number of patents that operate as I guess landmines, so to speak, uh, for competitors that are out there. If you think about an invention, there are uh, a number of different ways to claim that, you know, to write claims to that invention. Um, and by, you know, you can attempt to write claims in one patent application. Uh, oftentimes the, the patent office will make you um, elect a single embodiment of the of the uh, invention to prosecute so when you because essentially you're entitled to only one patent per invention so there if the patent office comes back and says you need to um, elect one uh, typically means that they have the opinion that there's more than one invention within a single patent application so that in some ways again gives you a little bit of an advantage because you can claim to write claims to uh, the patent or to the invention differently and that uh, again gives you a number of patents that again you, you've got like the, the picket fence you're creating um, so the by by developing a portfolio of a number of different of different patents uh, on your invention you you um, create more opportunities to find infringement um, because you know, again, one word can can mean the difference between infringement and non-infringement. So it's um, 
you, know, you can have, well, uh, to look at it uh, from another standpoint, you've, if you've got an invention, um, there may be a number of individual components within that invention that might be patentable. So you can uh, have a patent application directed to one portion of your invention, have another one that's directed to another portion. So you can end up getting infringement on only a part of the total invention. Um, look at a, uh, I had a study uh, about 10 years ago with a, an, an automotive compressor for an air conditioning system and you know the, out of that um, there were scores of patent applications that, that were filed on on that um, various components whether it be the pistons within it lubricants you know lubricant channels um, ways to get the lubricant back out of you know the uh, refrigerant um, so you know you can see that as you start getting uh, patent on each one of those items, you, you've just got more um, more ammunition to, to go after uh, potential infringers. So hopefully that's clear enough. But Yeah. And in terms of entrepreneurs trying to um, raise capital for their business, how do patent portfolios help them monetize their IP assets? Well... Investors love to see IP associated with uh, startups, and essentially, the more patents you that you have, or patent applications that you have associated with your invention and with your uh, small company, the, basically, the more marketable uh, it is to investors. You know, they're they're putting forward a, a bunch of bunch of money to help you move it forward, but you know, they want to protect their investment and the best way to do that is, you know, to keep others out of the, the area so that they, you know, so that the company does well and it can monetize, uh, the intellectual property and, and move forward. So, you know, they're looking at it as just a good way to protect, uh, protect their investment. And, um, so again, if you can put together a, a decent portfolio, uh, it's just going to add value to to the startup. Are there any resources you would recommend to entrepreneurs who are planning on applying for a patent, such as like websites they can check out or anything of that nature? Well, you know, we mentioned it earlier. The U.S. Patent and Trademark Office is a is a good resource, um, but nowadays it, it, there's a number of incubators and accelerators that that have popped up there's competitions you know a lot of these um, shark tank type competitions uh, a lot of the universities do various companies that that have sprung up out of uh, state investments in, in economic development uh, are another area you know they, they essentially have again the, you know the incubators and accelerators that work with fledgling companies and try to take them to the, you know, the next level. And so, you know, in most uh, cities and, you know, most states uh, around the country, there are various tools like that that, that um, you can check with. So I, that's a great place to start uh, contacting 
uh, universities looking for various uh, competitions and, and events like that. There's seed groups that, that uh, just lots of resources like that that fledgling companies and, and small companies can, can look for. Cool. So any general tips or rules of thumb that you would give for entrepreneurs regarding patents? The one that comes to my mind is don't publicly disclose inventions before you talk to a patent attorney and try and get your patent application started. Yeah, that's typically the biggest one. I mean, in the U.S., if you publicly disclose or offer for sale an invention, um, prior to filing, you've then started a one-year clock. It's known as the one-year bar. So from that point of disclosure, offer for sale, in the U.S., you have to file a patent application within that one-year period or you're barred from doing so. Many foreign countries require what's called absolute novelty, whereas if you disclose, your rights have suddenly evaporated. You you no longer have the right to file. So... Um, we try to encourage people as much as possible to at least get a provisional patent application on file so that they can then go out, test the market, try to see if there's potential of manufacturing, um, if what the public interest is, if there's going to be you know a market, all those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, the, that's, that's one of the biggest things we look at. Um, the, you know, the, the other kind of general advice that I have is that Make sure, you know, don't, don't ignore intellectual property. I, you know, I think there's a lot of people, again, because of the, the money involved and, and things like that and, and maybe being intimidated to go in front of a, an, an attorney um, that they kind of put off or don't, um, don't protect their uh, intellectual property. But I mean, you've put a lot of time and effort into creating whatever it is and to not protect it is just is a is a mistake, you know that that we often see, and oftentimes we'll, we'll have people come in, and it's too late, you know they've um, they've disclosed it, uh, somebody's you know taken and, and uh, copied it, um, and you know they may be beyond the one year, so definitely most I think most patent attorneys will. Um, at least have an initial conversation with you to to um, to help you know help you they'll lay out the process uh, let you know what some of the potential costs are going to be when those costs will occur and you know they're not you know we d we don't and I know a number uh, also don't charge for that initial consultation um, you know you may get a you know a half hour or an hour of time that in the long run will be um, hugely important for invention and, and your your company so and one thing that you mentioned is use or sale in the United States I think it's important to emphasize that sale in the United States can include if something is for sale online and can be shipped to the United States that counts so even if you're a Canadian or a Japanese company and your product is available online to be shipped to the United States that qualifies as being for sale in the United States and starts that yeah. that one-year time bar, which is becoming increasingly important in today's 
internet world. It's, you know, certainly you have to look at the circumstances and to determine all of that, but it's um, the on sale bar and, uh, is, a, is an important one to know about because, um, again, for each of those, you have to look at the circumstances and, and determine how things were disclosed or, or what the sale was, what, what the circumstances behind the sale would be uh, to, to see if it amounts to, to basically starting the uh, one-year clock. So just to wrap things up, one of the things that we like to ask on the IPLJ podcast at the end is what advice would you give to people considering going into intellectual property law and what do you wish you had known? Which is an interesting question because you're my father and you've given me a lot of this advice So since I'm going into patent law as well. Well, I gave you a lot of advice, and you're going into uh, patent law anyhow. So, <laughs> um, it's you know I, I I find it very enjoyable. I you know to be quite honest, when um, we had going back to when I was in engineering school, and the patent attorney came in and spoke to our class, it sounded really boring to me. The person that came in was probably not the greatest person in the world to um, to come in because they you know they were some I guess somewhat of an introvert and, and very dry in the way they presented things and um, did not paint a good picture of patent law for me. And so when people started encouraging me when I get into law school to at least check it out, I really thought long and hard about maybe not even looking at it, but I'm glad that I did because it's, it, it, you, it, it's as interesting as you can, as you want to make it because you, again, if you, um, open your door to a lot of entre- entrepreneurs that, um, you know, the individuals and the small companies that, that come along. It, it, you really see a lot of um, just really neat technology. Um, and I just, I, I enjoy talking to the individual inventors and seeing how they came up with something or what motivated them to invent um, there's there's a different type of mind that that does a lot of the inventing. I mean, people. I, I, I'm convinced that people uh, that that come up with multiple inventions really see things differently. You know, they start to look at something and breaking it down in their mind and thinking, how is, could this work better, um, or what could I do differently, or how could this be done differently to where. Um, it's better for all. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting career. And I, you know, I would just encourage people up there thinking about it to maybe, um, try to talk to a, a patent attorney before, um, starting down that road just to, to hear their experiences. Maybe, you know, I know every, every year that we have, uh, a couple of the high schools here that, that send in someone to shadow us for a couple of weeks, um, to just to be given that opportunity to to get a flavor for what it is. I mean, I guess you know that advice probably goes for just about anything if you that you're contemplating doing. But if you can uh, get an opportunity to to get out and, and just get a sample and, and see if see if it, if you think it's boring or if you like it. But it's you know um, I th- I think can be a quite rewarding career. You can make a comfortable living and. Uh, and be happy with what you're doing. Yeah. I know speaking to you and to other patent attorneys, it 
it just seems like a very exciting area of law. First of all, it's so multidisciplinary where it's really at the intersection of science and engineering and law. So you have to have both mathematical and logical expertise, but also English skills. Um, and also it's an area of law where you're dealing with creation rather than you know, in criminal law or torts where you're dealing with people that have been wronged. Usually patent law deals with people that have this great new invention and they are seeking to create and to contribute to society. Right. And yep. so I think it's a really exciting, positive area to practice in. And for, you know, a little bit of a different direction here, for people that like to travel and and, and meet people from all over the world, um, it, it really gives you a great opportunity there. We have a network of people we work with throughout the world. You know, we can, being a patent attorney in the U.S., I can practice in the U.S. I can't practice in other countries. And so we have patent attorneys there if a client desi you know, has a desire to file in other countries and we work with them. We've met a number of them. We've traveled to a number of different offices and have made a lot of good friends, quite frankly, throughout the world that um, uh, I would have never given been given the opportunity uh, to do. So uh, that, that, that end of it, just on a personal level for me, is um, pretty enjoyable. Uh, it's, it's really neat meeting people literally from, from everywhere. Sounds fun. <laughs> I think it is. <laughs> I think one piece of advice that I actually received from a Fordham Law faculty member that really helped change the path of my career was to take the patent bar before law school because you're eligible to take the patent office exam at any point after you've received a science or engineering degree. And to get that out of the way before law school opens up opportunities for you to work as a patent agent and also makes you a lot more marketable to law firms. And it's just great to have that out of the way before yeah. you start the It opens craziness a lot of doors, but takes a lot of stress out of the post-law school experience because you already have a state bar exam that you're going to prepare for and to throw you know, the, the patent bar exam on that uh, is you know, just one more layer of stress. All right. Well, thank you for sitting down and talking with us about patent law and startups. It's my pleasure. Thank you. The Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderator is Mark Parrison. Our volume 29 editor-in-chief is Jeffrey Greenwood. Our managing editor is Michael Robert. A special thank you to Meredith Miller for hosting this podcast. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. You can follow us on our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at ForumIPLJ. You can also visit our website, ForumIPLJ.org, for our daily content. I'm your online editor, Patrick Ho. Thank you for listening. See you next week.